Street veteran Bernard Madoff has been arrested and charged with running a $50 billion Ponzi scheme. Congress wants to know what caused the Enron meltdown. Now, well, the collective rage currently is focused on WorldCom. Tyco CEO Dennis Kozlowski was convicted of looting hundreds of millions of dollars. This is one of the biggest fraud cases ever. Their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Find out more on this week's episode of White Collars, Red Hands. We've covered some big Ponzi schemes on this show before, with the largest obviously being the fraud perpetrated by Bernie Madoff when he stole over $60 billion from investors. Madoff, however, kept his dealing just in the United States and managed to do the whole thing without the support of an international organization, something that can't be said for today's topic. Alan Stanford was the sole owner and leader of a multinational bank, the Stanford International Bank, that over the course of decades grew to a huge size. But the whole time the institution and many others were being orchestrated in a tangled and complicated web that was designed solely for one purpose, to separate hard-earned money from people and fund the lavish lifestyles of those at the top. Not only did the bank utilize shell companies, but it was one almost entirely. Learn more about the silver medal holder for Ponzi schemes and white-collar crime convictions in America on this week's episode of White Collars, Red Hands. You know what else has grown large in size over the past few decades? Uh, obesity rates in America. Absolutely. Oh, I got it. You got it. Hell yeah. I love when that happens. Yeah, It good almost job. never happens. Yep. <laughs> uh, also well, my dick. Fuck <laughs> We were like we were like a quarter of a second from me getting into the next line and just leaving that in the bath. And here we are. It's on the table, not your dick. But that nope. Take My it out. giant fucking schlong. This is how we start podcasts, huh? We do this whole intro talking about white collar crime and Ponzi scheme. This is the only place you'll get a dick joke immediately after all that seriousness about white collar crime. That's and why that, you asked me to do this. Well, that's our guarantee here. We, we have the earliest dick jokes in white-collar crime podcasting history, and we will stay that way. Yes, we will. We will stay that way. I'm not changing. <laughs> we know. <laughs> but, so, but you if you're here, you already know that. So welcome back to another episode of White Collar's Red Hands. I'm Kashan. And I'm Nina. And we're back at it with Ponzi schemes again. Yes. They keep happening. People love Ponzi schemes. They do. Uh, it's it's funny, though, because you ever hear of a successful one? Well, those are the ones we don't know about. Mm, yet. 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 Uh, there will be more. So, oh, yeah. Um, and there was this one. Uh, it's a little bit older. It, it actually ran um, in conjunction with the Bernie Madoff scheme. Like, they both came down at around the same time, so... Uh, if you were alive at that point and older than us, because this was, I was like 14. And I would have been 17. Yeah. So we were we were teenagers and weren't super worried about what was going on in the financial market. I wasn't. More worried about if, uh, what, what's her name? Zoe, uh, if Zoe was actually pregnant from Zoe 101. Oh, yeah. Jamie Lynn Spears. Yeah, Jamie Lynn Spears. And she was. And she was. And now they're rebooting it. You see that? Yeah, I don't know why they're doing that. Because they did iCarly, and people are actually watching it. I watched the first five episodes and was like, eh. Is her brother still hot? Jerry Trainer? 
You thought Jerry Trainer was hot? <laughs> I thought he was kind of cute. Uh, maybe he's like in an adorable way. Not Let me a, look him up. Not in a fucking like, you know, bend me over a barrel kind of way for sure. No, 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 no. Jerry Trainer. Yeah. Never knew his name. Oh yeah, he had something about him. He's the producer, actually. He's the one. Oh yeah, there's about. something about this guy. What? Yeah. All right. He looks like Aaron Hansen from Game Grumps, and you won't even get that reference with someone out there, Will. Dude looks like the guy from your hometown that's, like, moved back. He, like, went away and joined a motorcycle gang, and he moved back because his mom is terminally ill. You think Jerry Trainer looks like a guy who joined a motorcycle gang? Kind of in this picture. or like That's bullshit. Come on, like right no. here. Or a rock band. A rock band. He joined a rock band, and then his mom got sick, and he's back in town to help take care of her while he's not on tour. And then you run into him while you're visiting home, and you're like, oh, my God, Jerry Trainer, What happened to you? And he was like, what happened to you? And then you... <laughs> save, save this for a fanfic, okay? I don't want to hear anymore. Put it in writing and get back to me. We got to get to... Alan Stanford. I forgot, I forgot what this podcast So was let's about. just jump right into it. Five minutes later about Sorry. This, this Jerry Trainer rant. Uh, Robert Allen Stanford, who would drop the Robert bit and just go by Allen, was born in 1950, the son of James Stanford, the mayor of his small town of Mexia, Texas. And also to a mother, Sammy, a nurse, middle class. Because mm-hmm. uh, you might you might think, oh, well, his dad was the mayor. He has to be affluent. There are 6,000 people in Mexia, Texas. No, I've never heard of it. So. All right. So they could basically just like spin a bottle and choose a guy. Oh, yeah. Like, You're mayor. You look like you have a, go, yeah. go do some mayor stuff. They're like, oh, you don't have a DUI. You can be mayor. Yeah. Uh, no, you think you think someone in a small town Texas is voting for someone who doesn't have a DUI? I guess that's a good point. Absolutely not. Uh, at the ripe young age of nine years old, uh, Stanford's parents decided to split, which definitely wasn't his fault. <laughs> uh, which saw Alan move in with his mother in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, Alan eventually graduated high school and attended Baylor University. Oh, he's smart. This guy did not want to leave Texas. Is Baylor University a smart person university? Yeah, it's a good school. Never heard that. No, it's not like it's Ivy League. What the fuck is Baylor? No, but it's a good school. Okay, well, uh, he couldn't leave Texas. Uh, and that's where he would receive his bachelor's degree in finance in 1974. And now... What do all douchey young men with a finance degree decide to do immediately upon graduating? Tell us. That's right. Start a business almost completely independently because they think they've learned everything wrong with the system in four years and think they're going to be the one to mount capitalism and make it their bitch. Hell yeah. Uh, (laughs) They almost never do, though. That's the funny thing. Unless they steal a bunch of money and end up on the Forbes 30 under 30. And all of those people are fraudsters, basically, yeah. now. Yeah. Um, the business which Alan was trying to mount was a string of gyms. Uh, turns out Alan was a bit of a muscle junkie. He was six 
foot five inches tall and weighed in at a staggering 330 pounds of mostly muscle. And for a completely terrible comparison, that is four inches taller and 80 pounds heavier than the WWE sensation, John Cena. John Cena is definitely on my list. I think that, oh my God. Too much. Oh yeah, he can break my collarbone. Fuck yeah. You need help. So I want to look up this guy, Alan Sanford. Uh, he kind of looks like Ed Kemper, the murderer. <laughs> oh, I have a friend who looks like Ed Kemper. What? Yeah, absolutely. Because Ed Kemper was also just like a huge guy. Yeah. They just kind of, they, they look similar. He looks like a guy from Texas, if we're being honest. He really does. He really does. He's got that Texas vibe. Um, but so, he big, all right? Yeah, um, so, big boy. So, of course, Alan wanted to start a series of gyms operated out of Waco, Texas. Uh, but after a few years in the business, he had to divest the gyms because he had racked up like $12 million in personal loan and like personal do, debt. How do you do that? I don't know, man. You run gyms really poorly, I guess. I don't know. And I guess you can say that the gyms just really didn't work out. <laughs> uh, good. Those good mornings weren't so good after all. What? That's a gym move. Good mornings. What gym move is that? They're like RDLs, kind of. How how is it like a reverse deadlift? Which I know what it is. So don't you know? I think it's it's just like the opposite of a reverse deadlift. So it's a deadlift. No, I gotta look it up. Oh my god! But it's called a good morning. I, I thought you were saying some like sun salutations bullshit. No. And I was like, what do you? Th- this isn't a Pilates class. It's a fucking like he had like a Gold's Gym kind of thing. Um, after his first failed business, he decided he needed daddy's help. And the two got together to enter the business, uh, for which most dumb people get rich. Real estate. Hell yeah. Uh, you see, the price of oil had dropped substantially in the 1980s. And what is Texas known for besides terrible racism and truck nuts? Oil. Longhorns. Oil. Big boobs. Oil. The rodeo. Oil. So the Alamo oil never forget. Uh, so with the price of oil tanking, the Texas economy and thereby the price of real estate was in a nosedive. And that was for the whole beginning of the 1980s, uh, which just happened to be when Stanford and son decided to buy a bunch of real estate. That's kind of like that show. Sanford and son. Uh-huh. That's the joke. Then when they sold all of it later after the price had bounced back, they both made a considerable profit on the investments. They had made like, I think they said, no, it was a little bit after this. He made his first hundred million, but he would be a billionaire someday. Damn. So, um, and they really did make a small fortune on these deals because the company that they had thrown together to manage the business employed 500 people by 1993. Also in the early nineties, uh, Stanford founded an investment group known as Stanford Financial Group. He loved putting his name on stuff. Loved it. Uh, but Stanford realized that if he kept running operations out of Texas, then he was going to have to keep paying taxes. Boo. So Allen decided that the best course of action to live the libertarian dream is to move instead to the Caribbean. Uh, firstly, moving to the British Isle of Montserrat. 
but unfortunately, this was kind of at the exact same time that the British government had decided to crack down on offshore banking within the territory. Uh, so Allen packed up and moved one more time to the place that he would largely operate out of for the coming decades, Antigua and Barbuda. Ooh. Specifically, Antigua. Antigua. Yeah. Um, while in Montserrat, he created a banking subsidiary of the Stanford Finance Group, originally known as Guardian International Bank, uh, but fully branded the bank when he moved it to Antigua as Stanford International Bank. Uh, Stanford already had ties to many different investors, uh, and he had managed money of people like the world round. After he started in real estate, he became in, he became like an investor and like a money manager for people. So he knew a lot of people. He was already managing a lot of rich people's money, uh, but he realized that people across the world uh, were worried about governments not being as stable as they used to be, especially probably around the 80s, like in the Cold War, right? Or yeah. right at the end, you know? That makes sense. Yeah, people were probably worried about the collapse of countries, right? Because the yeah. USSR just went away. Um, so he realized that uh, these people... These investors wanted not only to diversify their portfolios within their home countries, but also wanted to diversify them uh, internationally. So buy stuff from all of, all across the world. Um, and this was the motivation behind the creation of the Stanford International Bank. Uh, but as soon as Alan was behind the wheel of the company, he swerved straight for the bush, taking it for a multiple decade joyride off the beaten path. I don't know. When you people say they're like... I'm just going to start my own bank. That just doesn't sound like it's going to end well. Yeah, banks seem fake, right? Like, how can you just be like... I'm going to start a bank. I think I'm just going to be a bank. Yeah. I don't you know, you can start a bakery. Yeah. And you can start... A hair salon. A hair salon. You can't just start a bank. No. That I, seems fake. I guess at some point you get rich enough, right? And you're just like... Fuck it. You want to start a bank? Sounds fun. I don't know. I'll never, I don't think I'll ever be that rich. And that me either, bro. I already started too late. If Dang. I got rich now, I'd be rich as like my 50s. Ugh. I mean, depending on how it happened, yeah. Not unless you guys blow it up. You, you guys blow up this podcast. I think the richest podcaster just probably still doesn't get a lot of money from the podcast. Not like comparatively to these guys. How much did Joe Rogan get? I don't know. Ah, that's the second time we've referenced Joe Rogan. That's your fault. God damn it. Well, you got one. I got one. That's it. He's blacklisted. No more Joe Rogan, unless he wants us on his podcast. No, I'm putting my foot down. We will not go on the Joe Rogan experience. Heard. He can come on our podcast. And okay. that's that's the only way we're doing it. That's fair. All right, Joe Rogan's people, you hear that? You heard it here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Stanford International Bank was an interesting one when it came to business because most banks make a bulk of their money through issuing loans. Uh, Stanford International Bank, on the other hand, did not. Their main asset that they sold was something called a certificate of deposit or a CD. And not like the CDs that you were used to buying in the 90s, <laughs> right? Right. All right. Different one. <laughs> Yeah, this is no this is no metamorphosis by Hillary Duff. Oh okay? my god, that was one of my first CDs. It was one of all of our first CDs. Okay? Did you had a copy of Metamorphosis? Wow, you don't even fucking know it. It's let the rain fall down. No, those are not the words. I wanna scream. Slightly different. Anyway, so a CD 
A CD is basically a high-yield savings account that comes with a few more strings attached. The most important of which is that there is a certain amount of time that you agree to leave your money in the account until you can take it out without penalty. Uh, kind of like how many retirement accounts are set up uh, to not pay out the full amount if you liquidate them prior to retirement. Oh, my aunt did that. Yeah, it's highly advised against, right? Uh, yeah, my grandma was not happy with her. When setting up the CD, you get to choose how long you want to leave your money in, and uh, the longer you leave it in, the higher your return on the account will be. Stanford International Bank was not the only one selling these, of course, uh, as CDs were and still are offered by almost all banking institutions. Uh, the difference was that the rates that Stanford International Bank was saying that they would pay to holders of their CDs uh, was way higher than promised, or way higher than competition. They promised rates well above uh, consistently anywhere between like five to high 7% ranges, usually on CDs that were like three to five years in length. Uh, they did require an initial investment of $100,000, though. That so. is becoming more and more popular in these episodes lately. What? That you got to invest like $100,000. Supposedly, I guess this this was a normal thing. Like, if they, if they paid higher rates, they obviously wanted you to put more in to begin with. That makes sense. And leave it in. But but 5 to 7% is uh, crazy. Like, to put that in per, into perspective, J.P. Morgan Chase, right now... Uh, probably, is it the biggest bank? I think it's the biggest bank. Um, right now quotes a fraction of a percent return, 0.05% for a 10-year CD. So these rates were astronomical and obviously would be preferred by clients if the option was available. They also showed the historical underlying investment growth uh, through the mid-90s to the mid-2000s when attempting to recruit brokers and these, this growth data showed that the Stanford Investment Bank portfolio consistently beat the market by 13 percentage points every single year it was operating. Uh, because of these figures, many brokers decided to get on board selling CDs for Stanford International Bank, bringing most of their existing clients with them. So they were getting a lot of investors who wanted to buy CDs or who wanted to invest in general. And they also pitched these like great performance numbers to brokers to get them on and bring everyone with them. Um, it helped that the brokers that sold the CDs made a 1% commission on sales, which is pretty high for things like this with the opportunity for an additional 1% commission. If certain criteria, if certain criteria were met, this all meaning that the people selling them were extremely incentivized to switch as many of their clients' investment portfolios over to Stanford International Bank as possible. These brokers, most of the time, looked at the pitch book with the incredible returns and saw how much money other brokers and clients had made and left it at that. But some of them asked a few more questions, really interested in what kind of portfolio Stanford and Associates had put together that could generate these kind of too-good-to-be-true returns. And most of these questions were absolutely stonewalled by executive management of the business. They just told them, or just told the brokers, rather, that they were encouraged to state that the investment was just done smarter at Stanford International Bank, and that 
is why they could generate these kind of returns. Yeah, we just do it smarter. Yeah, and it, it was like... Work smarter, not harder. It was that's a, why we get these good returns. It was a black box. Dude, Alan Stanford, it's funny, that's exactly what he did. He'd be like, he'd be like, we just do things different here, was something he loved to say all the time. But, uh, but like, no proof? Yeah, one broker, like, started asking so many questions that they were like, Wilf? fly you out to Antigua to see our headquarters and he got there and he talked to like the branch manager and was like this guy doesn't know anything about banking <laughs> uh, and yeah if you asked they would just be like it's secret they said it was like proprietary they're like mm, we can't tell you it's secret that's a good any, marketing any, strategy anyway go sell millions of dollars worth of these Jesus Christ. On the fact that it's secret. Um, Terrifying. They also, uh, the, oh, sorry. The brokers were also told to say that the investments were largely liquid, meaning that the money was safe to be pulled out of CD when CDs were complete. Like, like it was going to be easy to get the money back out. Once it goes in, they're highly liquid assets that are sold on the market. Um, additionally, when people raise concerns that Alan could just run away with their money because, you know, Ponzi yeah. schemes were happening right now. Uh, they told clients that the investments were oversaw by a 20-person analyst team that was always looking for better and safer opportunities. Additionally, but that's just a lie. Well, you're going to find out. Uh, additionally, they noted uh, that in Antigua, the regulatory body, uh, the Financial Services Regulatory Commissioner, the FSRC, uh, led by Leroy King at the time, conducted a thorough audit of the bank's holdings every year to ensure that they were worth what Stanford International Bank was saying they were worth. Like, we have all these assets. They're worth what they say. We have a governmental regulatory body behind us that says so. All of this was incredibly appealing. And mostly through CDs, at its height, the Stanford Financial Group had about 50,000 individual investors from 140 countries and managed assets of $50 billion. Damn. The bank alone managed around eight billion but it was pretty big for the time still uh but all of this profit seemed to go straight to alan's already large texan head everything's bigger in texas baby mm -hmm, including egos uh another a safeguard to this however the yin to alan stanford's yang uh was the appointed cfo jimmy davis jimmy davis was the cool-headed businessman that gave people peace of mind uh when they worried about Alan Stanford's bigger-than-life personality that was only growing bigger. Originally, Alan Stanford displayed the outward persona of a down-to-earth, small-town Texas Christian who just happened to live on a tropical island and managed billions of dollars in wealth while simultaneously being a billionaire. However, starting in the early 2000s, he started getting wild spending more and more money on a lavish lifestyle. In a three-year span, he spent $100 million on transportation. Just on transportation. Alone, including a helicopter, multiple private jets, and he also spent $12 million extending his yacht by six feet. Is that really going to make a difference? That's what I'm saying. If it's going to be that expensive, just sell it and buy a new yacht. Yeah, what the hell? Like... You're six feet. It's just if you would lay yeah. on the edge of the boat. Like, is it going to give that much more of a difference? It's literally, it, it's shorter than he is tall. 
Yeah. And they added that they were like, well, also, what do you put in like a bed? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I don't have a yacht. No, he spent $12 million on it. He also spent so much money in Antigua that he basically became integral in their economy through donations and how many people he employed on the small island nation. That's like that other guy that we had talked about who went to Costa Rica. Oh, the guy who was always on the run? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like he became so integral to their economy that they wouldn't let him go. It was only until like he tried to pull a fast one on them where they like, you got to go. I think the Stanford International Bank was probably the the highest valued company in Antigua for sure. Oh, probably. At this time. And this was obviously, there were a lot of like foreign, like offshore banks here, but I think this one was the most popular. And yeah, like I said, he employed a lot of people there too. So he was just like, yeah, he, he very integral to their society. Um, he had so much influence that in 2006, he was knighted by the country and could legally be addressed as Sir Alan Stanford, which people say he liked to use a lot. They're knighting people in Antigua? Well, I'm pretty... Because they're British? Yeah, well, I think, Weird. I think they're, like, descended from, like, the British monarchy, but mm-hmm. now separate, so they hold a lot of the same values, but I don't know that for sure. I'm, I'm not really up to date on Antiguan history. Knighted. But yes, he was knighted in Antigua, Sir Alan Stanford. Um, Stanford also used to proclaim that God and family came first, but it was around this time that he also divorced his wife and fathered six children with four different women over the next hey, few he's just years. That, he's making a lot of families and putting them all first. Yeah, well, first until he found another one to make and then, well, get in line. I got a new family to be first. Wow, he's, a, he's, an, he's like Nick Cannon. Oh, Nick, that guy needs to stop. He has a breeding fetish. Did he finally get a vasectomy? No, he's not getting a vasectomy. God damn it, man. He's stupid. He's got like 12 kids. I know. He's got to stop. And everyone seems cool with it, too. They're all like, like all of his like baby mamas are like. That's the weirdest part. Like they're all like. "Hmm." Stop. You know, like maybe, maybe that's what they're doing. They're just like, I just want a kid. And and obviously, Nick Cannon's very fertile. So let's go. Um. Jimmy Davis, the CEO, was seen as the one still in the business uh, while Stanford sowing his uh, 40-year-old wild oats. Um, But, of course, he was also maintaining multiple affairs, including one with their chief investment officer, Laura Pendergast Holt, who was put into that position while not being a certified public accountant or being certified as an analyst but what Laura was there to do was to train all of the brokers on how to sell the CDs to potential clients and put out many of the pitch books with their past earnings in them. She was the one who developed those. And she was like um, Jimmy Davis's protege, who was also sleeping with him. Um, and she like never went to school for any of it. And they made her their chief investment officer. Was that so was did they say what the purpose was behind that? Because like a real chief investment officer would like not be OK with this. I think most people would be like, why would you make your chief investment officer someone who has absolutely no background? No, but I'm saying like for her to do the CDs and stuff, like uh-huh. for her to sell these, she's actually not qualified in this. So she's like, oh, I don't care. Whereas a person who would be qualified in this would be like, hey, it's against my moral judgment to do this. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Technically, we haven't even gotten into the, the illegal stuff yet. Mm. But, but it's coming. Don't worry. 
Uh, so with Alan Stanford on the decline, both in the office and at home, and surrounded by executives that seem to be equally unqualified and debaucherous as he, do you think that the two could to be true returns on the CDs were simply because they invested smarter than everyone else? No. Yeah, it turns out no. Alan Stanford had always said that much of the money invested went into proprietary and secret portfolios, but where it really went was right into the pockets of the executives. It turns out that around 9% of the money invested was in cash, or cash-like equivalents, Around 10% was invested through outside money managers into portfolios that were not fully selected or influenced by Stanford International Bank. And 81% of the money was overseen by Stanford and Davis themselves with almost no other input from anyone else. Out of the $8 billion said to be invested in CDs in 2009, $4.3 billion was held in real estate and unsecured loans to Stanford himself. Awesome. So over half. And remember uh, when they said that most of the money was liquid and easily movable Mm -hmm. and in market securities? That's already a lie. It's mostly in real estate and in loans to the CEO. Ah, nice. Well, Real estate, like I said, not liquid at all. Additionally, uh, an SEC investigation showed that the real estate assets held by Stanford International Bank were also falsely inflated. uh, Their values were falsely inflated through something called round tripping. Basically, another Stanford company would buy the asset from Stanford International Bank and then sell it back to them at a ridiculously inflated price to artificially add zeros to the balance sheet. Say, well, we bought this asset for this amount. Mm. Here's what it's worth. But they had already owned it previously. <laughs> they just sell it to someone else for a for a price and then buy it back at like a lot more. Uh, one property alone had its value raised from around $50 million to $2 billion by this mm. method. What kind of property is this? Oh, it was it was uh, property in Antigua, and I I don't know. It just said island properties. That sounds like all the buildings in that island would be two billion dollars. Yeah, well, the thing is, it's not worth two billion dollars. Yeah, what but the that fuck? but that's how much they could say it was worth when they said, "Well, we have two billion dollars of assets. That's where all your money went was buying this." But it was just a lie. Mm-hmm. Um, over $1 billion, I think it was $1.3 billion, was in personal loans to Allen Stanford. And they were these unsecured like loan slips that can be written on the books also as an asset. Like, oh, well, we're going to get this money back. How did they think that this wouldn't collapse? Well, they went on for 17 years. Damn. Um, and, that was, and this money is what was going to fund his private jet addiction. And also, cricket tournaments. Which, a little aside, I don't go much into this, uh, but Alan Stanford was a huge cricket fan and funded tournaments all across the world. And there's actually a documentary about him uh, that's more focused on this aspect called The Man Who Bought Cricket. So if you're really into cricket and that's why you clicked on this, you can go see that because we're not going to talk about it. I didn't even know people still played that sport. Yeah, because this is the 4th of July and this is America, baby. And we don't talk about cricket on this podcast. No, we do not. We talk about the American cricket. Baseball. Baseball, that's right. Just like how the American... What, freedom ring, bitch. The American tea is coffee. And the American uh, pastime is having a dentist. Those are three main differences from Britain. Yeah. Uh, 
The SEC, in their complaint filed after a early 2009 raid of the Stanford offices, alleges that almost no money was made from actual investments, and rather the money coming in from new CD purchasers was used to pay off the interest on the old ones, making this a Ponzi scheme that operated for 17 years and separated people from over $7 billion by their deception. Um, all of the graphs and pitch book numbers that were used to get brokers and clients on board had been knowingly falsified by executives with Jimmy Davis admitting that his entire job was to make up numbers. Awesome. Um, the 20-person analyst team had been a complete lie, as you astutely noticed, um, as the assets were only truly known by Davis and Stanford. And the country of Antigua had obviously failed its duties to audit the company completely. They were probably scared. Well, it turns out that last one was not just sheer incompetence or fear. However, as it turns out, Stanford over the course of years had paid over $100,000 to Leroy King, the head of the FSRC, that ensured the company would never get audited to its full extent. And when the SEC asked the Antiguan regulator for documents related to Stanford International Bank, he actually denied their request, saying it would be unlawful for the FSRC to disclose such information to a foreign body, a statement that was later proven to be false. King then immediately tipped off Stanford that the SEC was investigating him, and they had thought something was up at the company since at least 1997. Oh, shit. That's when they started investigating. That was in 1997, all the way up until the raid in 2009. Um, and this all came to light in 2009, largely because of the 2008 financial crisis, as we have seen multiple times before. All of the criminals get exposed as soon as the good times run out. The Stanford International Bank reported that they had only taken a 1.3% loss in 2008, which you might say they even reported a loss. Well, other financial institutions, including the Dow Jones, lost around 40% that year. Um, so that was kind of sketchy. That they were like, hey, we only lost 1.3. Yeah. Um, additionally, they denied any losses, either directly or indirectly, linked to the Bernie Madoff scandal, which had come to light also that year in 2008. Um Although it would be revealed that they actually lost about $400,000 from their 10% of the assets that were actually invested. So they also lost money there. Um, this caused a lot of people to try to withdraw their money from the CDs even before they had ended, um, which was met with Stanford International Bank trying to liquidate assets quickly, but not quick enough. The SEC, after a lengthy investigation, raided the business in January of 2009 and slapped civil charges on Stanford and associates that would then morph into criminal charges handed down by the Department of Justice indictment just a few months later, causing all of the companies owned and managed by Stanford to become insolvent. And I guess uh, he got tipped off that they were going to arrest him and he was in America at the time. So he was like, fuck, I got to get out of here. So he contacted a private jet company and was like, hey, get me out of here. And he wasn't charged with a crime or anything yet, so he could have left. But they wouldn't accept a credit card, only a wire transfer. And at this time, wire transfers between Stanford International Bank and all of his companies had been frozen by processing companies. Fuck. Because they were already, like, 
They had done it before the SEC stuff came out because they were like, this can't be true. Like, they kept seeing their numbers and finally were like, when they saw the loss for like 2008, they were like, can't be true. Right. And that's what you get for being an idiot. Yeah, man. So he couldn't get out. He got arrested. He went to jail. By the way, also lost the knighthood. He was stripped of. He was <gasps> he stripped, was stripped of, the, of his knighthood. Of the title I'm of sir in 2010. I'm sure when you lose your knighthood, they cut off your balls. They don't make you a eunuch. Yeah, they do. Do you know nothing about history? I don't know. I don't know about the cutting the balls off. I feel like you have a history book that's just about cutting balls off somewhere in your house. I do. So. I know how to castrate. Well, and it's it's bound completely in testicle skin. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, great. I'll have to see it sometime. I stretched it myself. Disgusting. Uh, everyone except Stanford pleaded guilty almost immediately to the charges. But Alan Stanford had one more trick up his sleeve. He pled not guilty knowing that he had some friends in the SEC, just like he had a friend in the Antiguan regulator, regulation, regulating body. There we go. Um, one of these friends actually released a report that the SEC had made a mistake in their claims leveled at Stanford. But the chief investigator at the SEC was questioning of this report and hired a third-party external review of the commission's findings, which supported their original claims of a large-scale fraud and actually was the one who came up with the number of over $7 billion because the SEC didn't even have that before. King, uh, Davis, and Pendergast Holt and other accountants who helped perpetuate the fraud were sentenced to anywhere between 3 to 20 years in prison for the crimes, including additional charges for obstructing justice, as they had all made false statements to the SEC during the original investigation and also conspired to make false statements. They, they like, discovered emails where they were like, Laura, you're going to say this stuff to the SEC and you're going to lie. Um, which, by the way, a little sidebar. Laura Pendergast Holt, as far as I could tell, did the same crimes as everyone else, and they only gave her three years. Hmm. And I was like, come on, man. What the fuck? Like, the other three got 20 years. Well, King got 10, so the regulator got only 10 years. And then the other two accountants got 20 years. And she only got three? She got three. Huh. And then supervised release for three years after that. It's but, still not that long. Yeah, I was like, that's weird. I, I didn't see a good reason why. Like, she she wasn't even, like, the main informant or anything. Oh, you feel like she should have gotten less? No, she should have gotten more. Oh, yeah. Like, I if think other so people too. get 20 years, she should have gotten more. So No, that's what I think. I don't know, but I just wanted to bring it up because it was unfair. But because Alan Stanford pleaded not guilty and over 400 victim impact letters were submitted detailing how normal people lost their entire life savings because of the collapse of the bank, in 2012, he was sentenced to 110 years behind bars and a money injunction of $5.3 billion. Damn. Which is second... Only to Bernie Madoff's 150-year sentence for his Ponzi scheme. So 2009, great Big year, great year for justice in, in yes. white collar crime because they actually handed out sentences. You know, yes. Um, he remains obviously in prison to this day at the age of 78. With the only other notable thing happening to him being that he was once severely beaten by his cellmate. Oof. Um, and although his injuries uh, were Severe, they were not life-threatening. Mm. There are pictures, too. Yeah, yeah. I saw those. Yeah, you got beat up. 
He did. He got beat up pretty bad. He got beat up pretty good. And he's a he's a big guy too. That's why I was like, who beat this guy up? The other big guy. The other big good idea. <laughs> um so today we had the story of a Ponzi scheme, but on an absolutely otherworldly level, orchestrated through a corporate network of banks and finance groups that spanned the entire world. But at its heart, it is the same as all others before it. Although Stanford International Bank held some tangible assets, it was almost entirely smoke and mirrors, with people's entire jobs being to make up figures, to deceive others, to get more investors, to pay off the old. Alan Stanford became corrupted by greed, and the desire for six more feet on his yacht led him to defraud thousands of grandmas out of their safe retirement. Additionally, he left a lasting impact upon the entire nation of Antigua, which without his influence and employment felt a noticeable recession in their economy after the collapse of Stanford International Bank. And who knows? Maybe when he gets out at the ripe old age of 156, he can try to open up another gym. Although my bet is that he spends the rest of his days behind bars and may his case be a warning for all such fraudsters in existence today. I'm looking at you, Elon Musk. You see they're doing that boxing match? Yeah. Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, if that happens, I, I'll suck both their dicks personally. I don't think, oh, that, wow. I don't think they're going to fight. I don't think they will either. I was going to say him leaving the country of Antigua, it probably really did screw over so many residents of Antigua because it's like the fire festival when they employed all those people and then didn't pay them. Like those economies depend on those people and it's really shitty when they screw everybody over. Yeah, such a big company too. You want to talk about like too big to fail. If this was an American bank, they would have given them a slap on the wrist and not arrested anyone because they would be too afraid about what it would do to the American economy. Yep. But they're like, fine, ruining another one. Yeah. And I'm not saying what he did was like, I'm not saying that he shouldn't have gotten in trouble. However. No, I, well, here's the thing. I think that like taking down the bank is the right thing to do because it's not our fault now. It's his fault for causing, for running a fraud that lasted almost two decades mm -hmm. and taking all these people's money and then buying mansions and shit with it. Yeah. You know? And having that stupid little mustache he has. Stupid little mustache. You know? Just like bad choices all around from this guy. I agree. That's all I'm going to say. And yeah, he fucked over He fucked over an island nation. He fucked over a bunch of old people here. And uh, he fucked over six baby mamas. He did. Oh, sorry. Four, four baby mamas, six children. Still. Plus his original kids. I don't know how many he had. I don't know. Wow. It's a lot of kids. Christians. Am I right? My family's Christian and they are not that fertile. Am I right? Well, tell Betty to get better eggs. <gasps> I'm not going to tell her that. That would make her so sad. Why? Did she want more kids? She had two. She wanted three. Okay. She got two. I know. Some people get zero. It's true. You know? Right, Betty? Count your blessings. Anyway, thanks. This is a touchy subject. <laughs> well, she's not listening to the podcast. I hope not. My I, God, you'd give I, her a heart attack. I, yeah, I don't think she's listening. Heart attack. Yeah. Um, and if we gave you a, a good heart attack, if we made your heart skip a beat. If we made your heart race, if we gave you a heart on, <laughs> then go ahead and <laughs> support us in some way. You can write a review. 
on Apple Podcasts. Yes. Uh, you can leave a rating also on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can do that. That supports us. We mm-hmm. love that shit. Yes. Um, you can you, you can follow all of our socials. Facebook.com slash white collars red hands, Twitter at white collars pod, Instagram at white collars underscore red hands, uh, TikTok. We just we're putting out TikTok videos every week. Keep you up to date. Uh, see a little see a little uh, graphic graphical aid. Yeah, a trailer. Yeah, a little trailer for the episodes every week. That's white collars red hands on TikTok. Um, you can also email us if you have any suggestions. That uh, we do have a fan submitted episode this week. It's going to be our finale, like we've said before. So if you want to, this season, not this week. This season, sorry. Yes, it's not the finale. Already, yet. it's not not yet. We're this, only three episodes deep. It's only episode three. We got a we got a few more to go. Um, but you can send suggestions to whitecollarsredhands at gmail.com, uh, or you can drop us a line at our website, whitecollarsredhands.com, through the contact us page uh, that's on the very front. And hey, while you're there, you might as well check out the merch at Tee Public. The link to that's in the show description, or if you're on that website, you can just uh, click the button that says check out our merch. It'll take you straight to the, the store page. You can buy a sweater or a coffee mug, t-shirt, or a laptop case, or a... Sticker? Sticker. I hardly know her. Um, So you can do all that. And the best thing you can do, tell a friend. You have friends, right? Tell them. You're a cool person. You're listening to the podcast. You got to have friends. Oh, yeah. So tell all of them. Be incessant about them. Say it so much that you stop having friends. All right. And we'll, we'll love you forever. And I think that's... I think that about does it. Just about it. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. And we'll see you next week for another episode of White Collars Red Red Hands. Hands.